1: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous episode 182. If you like poker, try out these other games. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers for helping us bring you an ad-free episode.
0: You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing.
1: Find out more at DicetowerNetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Yeah, this is Anthony. Anthony, I bet you heard the news by now. It's been everywhere. People are talking about it on our Slack group, on our Facebook. It's everywhere in geek fandom. Jean-Luc Picard is coming back, my friend. Yes! Guess the big announcement that hasn't been announced yet, because he hasn't announced it yet, is since he's coming back, he hasn't announced where he's coming back. So being that we are the biggest board game podcast for Star Trek games, clearly he's coming back here. Oh, oh. Um, yeah, I don't know about that. It's it's possible. So
0: this is this is conjecture, right? Uh, possibly, I, I I can't speak to it. It's, okay. It's, well, it's, I mean, if he hasn't said he's not doing that, yeah, we can rules lawyer it, and there you go. There we go. Right. <laughs> so All right.
1: It's uh, it's like Schrodinger is Picard. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Hey, he's a fictional character anyway. We didn't we didn't say Patrick Stewart was joining board gamers, not us. We said Jean Luc Picard. So that's true. It, this is an audio medium. Nobody will know. <laughs> just play a clip <laughs> just over and over again and be like should we start the podcast yes make it so number one <laughs> like great here we go everyone I, I think I think it'll help the uh, the listener count we'll do pretty well on that end We'll definitely corner the the Star Trek board game fans it's true I think you need to have some kind of flavor to the podcast you add in like that one color commentary guy. That's like way out, but, you know, he's a celebrity name. So you bring him on just just for that, just for the fans, I think, a little bit. Yes, John luc Picard's coming back. If you're a Star Trek fan, Next Generation fan, he's coming back. They haven't said how or why. As I said, we are hoping that Board Gamers Anonymous will be the place that he eventually lands. So if he does, you'll hear him on the podcast. If he doesn't, eh, you know, that's another option for him, too. But, Anthony, we have a lot of great stuff to talk about especially coming back from Gen Con. We are now finally back in the BGA headquarters. Nice recording situation here. Not the giant echoes of our little kind of castaway hotel. I would say what? A good 15 minutes away from the uh, Gen Con location? Oh, yeah,
0: easily. Yeah, it was a, it was a good 15-minute drive every way.
1: Yeah, and there's been some talk right now about Gen Con not being so happy with the technology from the convention center, I think we experienced some of those things, especially trying to get a signal, doing some recordings and such. So they are talking about not being happy, which typically means, hey, if this doesn't get fixed, we're out of here. But I believe they're under contract for at least another two to four more years, I think. So they're not going anywhere yet. But maybe in the future conventions, things might be a little bit better there.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you you look at these conversations every year right after the con and People make a good point in that there really aren't a lot of places in the United States in the middle of the country that could handle a convention of this size. Indiana Indianapolis is one of the few that can do it. And I don't think they want to move it to one of the coasts for obvious reasons in that you have people having to travel both ways. But yeah, I mean, you have the hotel issue, which I guess Indianapolis is working on. They're building new hotels. And you have the technology issue, because if you try to get on a Wi-Fi or use your phone in that convention center, good luck.
1: Sure. And just the general travel to the, to the great state of Indiana tends to be a little bit problematic because it's not one of those huge airports. I mean, it's big, but, you know, typically no matter where you're flying from, you're paying a lot for your ticket. So I don't know. As you said, they don't want to coast because it, you know, disenfranchises everybody else. But I wouldn't mind an Atlanta that has a gigantic airport and not dropping four or $500 for a round trip ticket, not to mention the amount of hotel space. It's always a challenge. I know it's even getting bad for the vendors and the publishers out there because we got a lot of feedback that even their block of rooms really isn't that great. So if people from Gen Con are not kind of having a good time, no one's really having a good time. So I guess we'll hear updates as things go on, but Gen Con's going to be there for at least a little while longer. So hopefully you got a chance to get out there. And if you didn't, I definitely recommend it. It was a lot of fun. Definitely not as big as their 50th, but still a great time overall. Yeah, and the funny thing, too, is apparently there were more people. It just didn't feel as big.
0: It was they didn't have like the big stuff going on and the... I mean they they were still in the football stadium but you didn't have like the big replica of the first one there. Sure. Um there wasn't a guy's booming voice over the freaking loudspeaker every 10 minutes reminding <laughs> you that it was the 50th anniversary. It's true. Uh, it didn't have all the merch and stuff on the walls everywhere. So it you know kind of toned it back to the way it was a few years back but and yet more people were there and they were cramming them in.
1: Yeah, and the hotels had a lot more events and activities there so I think we're going to see more and more of that. I think the hotel situation is eventually going to get to a breaking point. Because if we were 15 minutes away and we were on the block, I think everyone else is going to have even a worse situation going forward. But hopefully those things will get worked out. And we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. Obviously, Essence coming up. And then obviously, PAX Unplug will be coming up. So two great upcoming conventions. If you can make it out to Germany, amazing. If you can make it out to PAX Unplugged. Even better, because we'll get a chance to see you there. All right, Anthony, so that's what's going on in a universe not too far away. Let's talk about what's happening much, much closer. What's our question of the week?
0: All righty. I have two new Legacy games sitting here for me, uh, Rise of Queensdale and Rise of Fenris. And lots of rising in these games <laughs> um, for Scythe. And so I asked everybody, what type of mechanics would you like to see in a Legacy game? Because... We have still a fairly limited number of legacy games in the wild. Some of them work, some of them don't. We've talked about a few of them, but I'm interested to see what mechanics people would, they want to have in these ongoing evolving games. Uh, Nico mentions time travel and Martin says Anachrony Legacy. I could get behind that. I think I could too. That'd be great. Um, Garamay Felga says real player elimination. Wow. <laughs> Which is like a legacy version of cash and guns. I'm like, I don't know if that would really work. We have Drew says implications of time elapsed between sessions. I, I don't know how that would work either, like to try to replicate the amount of time that goes into the game, but also between the games. I guess you'd need some kind of app to go with that. James says impactful choices where the players have enough information to make an informed, hence strategic decision. I think that's That's kind of the holy grail right now is a legacy game where you kind of know what you need to be building towards without necessarily spoiling the game. It's a big problem that I had in Charterstone and I know a lot of people had in Seafall is you don't actually know what's going to matter towards the end of the game. So you don't know how to build towards it. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to do a big meta to, to win the overall campaign, it's hard to do if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. A couple other mentions here. Uh, hidden role elements like Coup, where you have the meta already changes as you play. So you have actual powers. Chris mentions miniature customization, co- combat, robot, jocks, the legacy game. S- Selena says any kind of building mechanic, deck building, city building, tableau building. Um, this one makes a lot of sense. We have Aeon's End Legacy is coming up pretty soon. On uh, It's uh, recently announced. So a few other games coming out like that as well.
1: Yeah, there's so many different things, especially, as you mentioned, the legacy mechanic is becoming more and more of a, of a mainstay. Uh, Rob Davia was pretty much on every new game, at least at, at Gen Con's concern, as far as the buzz is concerned. Werewolf Legacy is, is there, as you mentioned, Queensdale, and obviously Rise of Fenris is there. So a lot of excitement because if and when these games are done well, there's nothing better in gaming as far as playing a game, that's not just going to impact that one game play, but multiple gameplays and builds a story. So that's always a, a lot of fun. And I'd like to see that in more and more games. We talked about this recently. The thing that I really do enjoy is the board game universes. So having games that impact other games. So you could have a theme night of anything particular. So like Lord of the Rings, we talked about where hunt for the ring impacts war of the ring. So, Having those different games kind of impact each other really is interesting or kind of trying to help out and connect other people to other games. So we talked about, you know, other games having RPGs. Star Wars has an RPG. So you could have played the miniatures game and then Armada. You can get bigger and bigger and scale or work its way down back to an RPG. So connective games for me because I can't say that I'll ever come down and be a, you know, lifelong gamer when it comes to one particular game. But there are mechanics and themes that I do like so much that I would like to play in other types of versions. All right. So speaking about all these different board game universes, there's a lot of different universes in which you can get in contact with us. So if Facebook's not working out for you for the question of the week, don't forget Twitter is also there and available for the same question of the week. We'd love to hear back from you that way. If that universe is not working well for you, check out BoardGamersAnonymous.com. It has our email addresses and ways to contact us to let us know what you're thinking about board gaming. Obviously, there's iTunes and Stitcher, where most of our gamers get our contact. There is also YouTube. We love to have your ratings there, and we love to have your comments on all of those types of platforms that the podcast is going out to, so we know what you're thinking, what you're playing, and we can get more of that content out to the podcast. Alright, Anthony, so there is so many different ways in which Board Gamers Anonymous is getting out there on the internet. Let's talk about what the internet's saying about board games. What's our acquisition to for this week? Okay,
0: so we've reached the magical point where our Gen Con lists are done. We have all the games are stacked here, we're gonna be playing them. And now we can look at the Essen list and all, <laughs> all the stuff. Thankfully, I mean maybe not so thankfully, but at least for my wallet, thankfully. I'm not going, you're not going. I will not be able Aww. to buy these. They will show up in the U.S. when they show up. It's probably for the best. All right, so I'm going to dive in with my first one. There's a few here um, we'll be talking over the next few weeks, but this one is interesting to me because it's a game that I was very much enjoyed this last year, and that's Santa Maria, and this is the first expansion for that, American Kingdoms. There is very little information up right now, so we have just kind of a brief summary and then a photo of what's going to be there, but it mentions new buildings, new scholars, bishops, shipping tiles, and then four new modules. So there's Coco specialists, a governor, and then a asymmetrical role in the Mayan city for one player with its own unique rules and goals. And it's that last bit that I'm the most interested in because, you know, these new single modules that you throw into Euros are always interesting. And it's usually there's one or two out of a bunch that are good and the rest are fine. You never put them all together. It's just a whole bunch of new ideas that the designers thought of. And they're like, let's throw it in a box. Let's do it. I I think this last one sounds the most most interesting to me because asymmetrical, something different, one versus many, whatever this is, in a fairly typical Euro type game, sounds different. Sounds you know like something beyond what we normally see out of this type of game. The photos look very interesting. We have a new board here, you know, pictures of the Mayan city, dice kind of moving around this circular, twisting track. Yeah, this is a game I had a lot of fun with. That kind of really jumped out as a surprise and very puzzle oriented hoping to see you know what this new content is coming soon
1: yeah i'm really excited about this especially it's a really solid game that really doesn't have a lot of buzz out there but it does a couple of things that both you and i like a lot and expansion just bring it back to the table be excellent yeah absolutely so that is uh, santa maria american kingdoms
0: coming at essen
1: All right, Anthony. So a game that I'm looking forward to, once again, not a lot of information out there about it, but definitely something that has kind of been trending in a lot of different ways, which is two-player versions of excellent games, at least solid, solid board games. So we've seen Caverna have a two-player version. We've seen Seven Wonders have a two-player version. Just There's been a lot of these kind of really nice, heavy, crunchy, fun games to play, somewhat boiled down to a two-player version, but they, they don't lose their flavor. So this one that's coming up from Cosmos Games is Emotep, the duel. And once again, it's a two-player game. And in this, you're going to be playing kind of a slimmed-down version of Emotep. Now, you probably already know Emotep. It's all about utilizing these boats in order to move all of these big stone blocks to build monuments and pyramids. Well, the same thing is true here. You have in two players... Game pieces have to be placed so that you can unload the most valuable pieces. And then you're utilizing the boats in order to kind of strategically place those. And while that's happening, each player is building one of their four monuments in order to gain fame points. Because if you're going to build giant monuments and pyramids, it's all about fame. So not a lot of information out about this. Probably we'll see this at Essen. It's one of the hot games out there. And if it plays anything like those other grade two player games, I'm really interested in this uh phil walker harding has done a great job we'll be talking about gizmos in a minute so love emotep love a two-player version of this especially if it keeps the nice chunky pieces yeah this would be a
0: lot of cool i um it's a funny thing because almost all these games have two-player versions out of the box but yeah the two-player version is not usually very good so <laughs> it's like they go back to the drawing board like how do we make this work just for two but it's often good so i'm glad that they're doing it for
1: emotep All right, Anthony. So that's our Acquisition Disorders. Now let's finally hit the table and hit it hard with some Gen Con releases. What do you have for us this week?
0: All righty. So I have a couple games. One's a little bit older. Um, Pick this one up at Gen Con. And then the other one is the hottest of the hotness of the hot (laughs) that everybody keeps asking us about. So uh, I'm going to start off with a little bit older game and then we'll get to the more interesting one after that. Um, So this first game is called Wanted, Rich or Dead, and it is being sold by Ares Games in the U.S. And the funny thing about this game, is, you look at it, it's got the Western theme. It's clearly about Western people shooting each other because that's what they're all about. (laughs) And BGG actually lists it as a party game, which I found interesting. But as I was playing it, I think that's more or less accurate, though kind of on the higher end of party. So the the full game is five players. Everyone starts with five cards in their hand, and they're mostly the same, but a little asymmetrical. You also have your own player board, which is also just a little asymmetrical, uh, making all the characters just a little bit different. Um, On your turn, you're going to play one of those five cards, put it face down, everybody reveals it at the same time. It's going to have a location on it. Uh, If two of the pawns go to the same location, then they're going to have a shootout, quote-unquote. Um, and the shootout is you then pick another card from your hand, put it face down, flip it over at the same time, however many people do that, and whoever has the most bullets, and there's bullets listed on the card, sometimes you have to roll a die for it, is going to win. And if you win, you get the ability to rob the location, which is just using the text on the top of the card. If you get there by yourself, nobody else goes there, you rob it by default. Hmm. The goal of the game is to get the most money. There's a limited amount of money. There's 45 little money tokens. When the money is gone, the game ends immediately. So kind of get towards the end of the game. You want to be earlier because these locations will you know resolve in the order in which they're placed on the table. But because of that, it's fairly quick, about 30 minutes. Very easy to teach. Just follow the card, show people how to do it in about two minutes. And there's really honestly not much strategy early on. Later in the game, it becomes a little more apparent what people are doing. Who needs cash? Who needs possession cards? There's these cards you can steal to give you extra special bonuses or abilities. The shootouts are a little funny because everyone has slightly different power levels. So some cards are better than others, but if you're not paying attention to what cards people have played, you may not, or if you just don't know what other people have, some people have cards worth up to five bullets. Other ones just have a bunch of cards with dice on them. So it is a little bit different how you play it. It seems balanced, but it's a little wonky for, you know, a 30 minute game where you don't really know what everybody else has. But overall, it's fairly decent, quick Western-themed game. I don't hate it, but it's certainly not the best fit if you're looking for a thinkier filler. It's definitely more on the party side of the spectrum in terms of how it plays out. Fair bit of interaction, though. Probably a decent fit if this is the type of game you're looking for. The interesting thing I should mention, too, is that that's the five-player rules. If you play with three or four players, the rules are different. There's a stagecoach that moves around um, and combines these different locations. And if you play with two players, it's still different in that there's now an AI player that comes in. So it's an interesting game in that the rules don't actually fit for any single-player count. You have to learn differently for however many people you have. But they all seem to work. I played at five, and I played at four. So it all seems to work just the same. So anyways, I give it a play. Um, it works well. It's kind of a palate cleanser. Similar games like this sometimes have things like player elimination or they drag on a little too long. This doesn't have either of those. Everybody gets to do stuff for the full time. Nobody seemed to come in with no money at all. It's You can't really steal money from people. So you're going to get something. You're not going to have zero points. So not too bad. Wanted, rich or dead. So that was the first game of the night. The, the second one was the big one. Uh, that everybody's been asking me about, and that is Newton, so this is a new game from Cranio Creations, and Simon is publishing it here in the u s so there is a very, very limited number of copies at Gen Con I have had a chance to play this just real quick on terms of the rules there's a lot here, so i 'm just going to boil it down to the basics. i don't want to get stuck in the kind of the rules loop, but I think it helps to kind of understand what this has it's different than the other games um, that Simone Luciani's worked on. Uh, it does have a lot of similarities though. So if you like those other games, you know, pay attention. This might be a good one for you. Idea of the game is that you are a scientist in the age of reason. Um, all the cards are these famous scientists. You're traveling to famous universities and going down these different technology tracks. It's very science-based, but also still a Euro. It's so a little more abstracted. Um, there are four different tableaus and tracks that you're gonna be working with. You have a map where your scientist is moving around, visiting universities and ancient sites and all sorts of cool stuff. There's a work track where you are just generating money. There's a technology track where you move your students around to research things. And there's there's a tree that branches off at the end of which there's different things you can do. And then you have your library, which is in your own personal board, where you're going to shelve books to create victory point income and unlock bonuses. Uh, On your turn, you are going to play a card from your hand. At the beginning of the game, you have six of these. All the cards have one of five possible actions on them. There's an action symbol for each of the four tracks, plus uh, the fifth option is to take a new card uh, from a tableau that's going to be out. The power of the action you take is based on the number of symbols on your board. So as you go, you're going to be upgrading your board, getting new symbols that are constantly there, and then you add the symbol from your card... Beginning of the game, you're probably always going to have a one, but later on, you might have two by default, three by default, four by default, It kind of depends on how you build your engine. All of these cards have that symbol, but they also sometimes have other things on them. So they might have book icons that help you with shelving, they might have other icons and upgrades and special abilities on them. Uh, And then each of these tracks that you're moving around has lots of different tiles on them. So there's bonus tokens. If you pass one of those, you just take it and get some stuff. Uh, There's also objectives that have endgame points, upgrades, and special powers. And then the cool part are the mastery spots. And there's one on each of the four things. Uh, At the beginning of the game, you're going to get four cards, these master cards, and they have the famous scientists on them that I mentioned. So when you get to one of these mastery spots, you can play one of these cards, and they often have very powerful, sometimes almost game-breaking elements to them, like take the work action with a power of five, or put three green books out, and now they're just there for you to use whenever you need them. Uh, But they're also worth endgame points. So you definitely want to get two to three of these out if you can. thing about this game is that it feels similar in many ways to some of the other games in this lineage. It's card-driven actions. uh, The core mechanics are very simple, and there's a lot of options. Um, The map with the clearing board to get different bonuses, again, simple, but it's a little harder to wrap your head around, you know. Reminded me a little bit of Marco Polo, but because there are multiple maps that you're kind of keeping track of, there's a lot going on. So there's a decent amount of interaction there between all these things. The other thing that I found interesting is that it seems like you should be able to build up an engine and just go from there. That's the look of the game, the tableau, everything you're doing seems like an engine building game. But if you move your engine too much in one direction, it can be bad. So you need the map to work on the library and you need the upgraded cards to get the objectives. And a lot of the bonuses and scoring tiles relate to each other so you can't just focus on one or two things Um, you can specialize in like two things and then kind of work on the other two as you need to But you have to do all of it Um, which some people don't like (laughs) i've found in games like this where you have to kind of spread out people want to build their engine and they want to do their thing the game doesn't punish you necessarily, but you're probably not going to win. The game takes place over about six rounds, and the engine for whatever you're building doesn't really kick in until around round three or four. So early on, it doesn't really feel like you're doing too much. Uh, if I, I talked to at least one person who demoed this at Gen Con, and they said they didn't really have a lot of fun with it, but the demo was only two rounds, and so I don't think that's a good representation of this game. You really have to play at least half, probably the full game, to get a good feel for it. The game really does come down to those mastery cards you get, Uh, the available cards that are out there that you want to take on your turn, they guide you in some way. What do you want to do? How can you trigger these if they're going to, you know, push you along and maybe work together with your other um, strategy that you're working on? The, The balance seems pretty solid. The probably the most important, but again, I've only played this two, three times now, probably the most important though is the books in your library. If you ignore this, the, the way it works is when you complete a row or a column in the library, you're going to get income at the end of every round. And the income is victory points. So if you don't do it at all, you're missing out on a lot of points. Now you're probably doing other stuff that's going to get you points. So I don't, really don't know how bat- off kilter it is, but I think it's important uh, enough that you really should be doing it. it. It probably adds up to 20 or 30 points over the course of the game, just closing off one or two rows early. So something to keep in mind on. And then the game itself says about 90 minutes. I don't know how true that is. Um, There's, because there's so much going on, everybody was looking at a lot of these different things. I think it's probably going to end up going a little bit longer than that in most games until everybody knows it really well. It's got some pretty decent AP, especially in the late game. But all of these things, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, it's a great big honking puzzle right down to the fact that the solo game is just one player going through it without any of the changes for high score check. So there is no player interaction. It is essentially multiplayer solitaire for the people who use that term. Uh, and I love it a lot. But <laughs> if you don't like that, if you want to be interacting with each other, if you want to be able to block spaces and keep other people from doing things, keep that in mind. The only two things that are going to be interactive here is the cards in the tableau that you pick up, You can grab before someone else gets it, and then the bonus tokens that are on the map. Everything else on the map, multiple people can go to, so you can't really stop anybody from their strategy. The plus side to all this is that you can think through what you want to do on your turn while everybody else is going, so uh, that helps a lot. So the big question, because it's Luciani's involved, because it's one of these games, do I like this as much as Marco Polo and Lorenzo? I don't know yet. But I have a feeling it might come up just a tiny bit short against those other games, but not by a lot. I want to play it a bunch more to be able to rank it. But when it gets into that conversation alongside games like that, it's an easy buy for me. It's definitely worth checking out. If you like these games, if you like this type of game, um, this Euro with the tableaus and the maps and kind of manipulating all these things and working with your hand of cards and really trying to make sure that you're making the best action with what's available, then this is definitely worth checking out. Uh, It's Newton.
1: You mentioned trying to figure out where is it place in kind of their collection for people who've played Marco Polo and Lorenzo, how would you at least place this as far as weight is concerned? Is it more complex, less complex about the middle?
0: Um, yeah, I think it's about the same. It's probably on Marco Polo level. Um, okay. If you look at it on BGG, I think it gives it like a 3.3. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's in that mid three range. And the reason why it's a little bit more, I think is that there are so many things you could do on your turn, especially in the late game. You play, you have the five cards in your hand. Any one of those could do a lot of things, but you may not even want to take all the available points for that action. So you're always mm-hmm. thinking ahead. You really kind of want to program your in your head, at least, the actions you're going to take for the whole round, if you can, because every card you put down will impact the next card you put down. For that reason, it seemed to catch people a little bit more. Probably not as heavy as Lorenzo, but probably on par with Marco Polo.
1: All right. Well, I got a couple games to table after Gen Con. And Anthony, what was really surprising, you know, when you finally kind of broke through and made it as a major podcast is when you go to your game groups. And this week, I really try to hit as many game groups as possible. And every game group that I went to already had the games from Gen Con, they were like, no, I heard the podcast. I heard the Acquisition Disorders. We ordered them. We got friends to get them. We actually went out to Gen Con and picked those up. So nobody was tremendously surprised, but nonetheless, they were very happy to get these games to the table. So I'm going to be talking about two this week. Uh, The first one is on the lighter end, and we've already talked about this designer Previously, as far as Emotep is concerned, this is Phil Walker Harding. He's done Emotep, he's done Cacao, he's done Sushi Go, he's done Baron Park. So he has a, a pretty good pedigree of games in that kind of gateway to just slightly a little heavier as far as complexity is concerned. So I was really excited when Simon came out with Gizmos. Now, Gizmos is all about being this kind of mad scientist creating all these interesting, different inventions utilizing this kind of i guess you would say energy sorting machine which is this kind of cardboard holder for all these different marbles and then a certain number of them roll down that they're available to be picked up and then the rest of the marbles are possibly able to get to but randomly you're basically going to stick your hand into this kind of like I guess it reminds me most of kind of like those claw games where it's just kind of this big glass booth and there's things inside. So you're going to grab a, a particular element and that element's going to be able to utilize in the creation of that particular machine. Now Gizmos is a pretty, I would say not necessarily simple, but a very kind of streamlined gameplay mechanic where you're going to have this little slender kind of player board that's going to give you all the actions that you need. So Really nice little player board as far as that's concerned. And it's also going to it's also going to play a practical purpose because under the six different actions that come into the game, whether they're passive or active, you're going to be placing cards down in a column that is going to allow you to set the cards up to be activated based upon the action you take and based upon the symbology on that card. So basically going by the actions here, you're going to have all the way to the left, Your basic setup that's going to tell you how many marbles are you going to be able to keep in this energy spear, which is going to be this pretty thick little cardboard spear that's going to hold your marbles, hopefully, throughout the game, as long as no one bumps into it. It's also going to be able to tell you how many cards you can archive. In this case, think Splendor, because there's going to be a display of cards that you're going to be able to choose from. And if you can't or don't want to build it immediately, you can kind of place it in your archive for later use. Now, in addition to that, that archive is has a pretty limited number. It only starts with one, but don't worry, you're going to be able to build that up a little bit later. And then there's going to be a research action that you're going to be able to take that's going to allow you to choose three cards from any of the decks, and there'll be three decks, and then display of cards from those three decks. So you go through the deck, you pick out those three cards, you pick what you want to build or add to your archive, you put the other cards in the bottom, and... Gives you another option to play with. Kind of like almost like a little bit of a push-your-luck element here. So beyond those kind of like passive actions that are, are always kind of in play, there's also the pick action, which allows you to pick a marble that's available from that kind of rolling display. So there'll be six marbles available there. You pick one out, you add it to your energy circle, and that's pretty much it. There's also a build action, which allows you to pay the number of marbles that are required, and typically, not always, but typically, it's pretty much a straight number. So it might be two yellow, two blue, two black, two red. You pay those marbles, you throw them in the dispenser, and then you put your card into play. That card that you put into play is not active at the moment, but nonetheless, it's available. And then once you have those kind of actions set up, you're pretty much ready to go. So basically, the game comes down to building these different gizmos, so you're looking at the one level, two level, and three level. The, the further you go, the more elements are going to be required in order to build up that little gizmo. So you'll be picking marbles throughout the game. And as you build these different gizmos, as I mentioned earlier, they go as part of your column. And then what the really interesting part of this game comes out to be is those different cards chain off each other. So you could have a situation where a card in your archive is available to be built because you have the requisite number of marbles. You build it, you pay those marbles, you put it into the particular column that's required because let's say, for example, you built a yellow one. So you put that into your tableau, which triggers another card, for example, let's say in your pick action, that says every time you build a yellow card, you get to pick a marble. Yeah, pick a marble. But that also triggers another card that you happen to have that says, Every time you put t- you pick a yellow marble, you'll be able to pick another random marble. So it chains off each other, and towards the end of the game, you're going to have really satisfying chaining events that are going to allow you to pick up a number of marbles, purchase a number of cards, get diff- discounts, and also one of the other actions I didn't mention, which is a little conversion action, which will allow you to turn one of your elements into anything you want it to be. But that typically comes a little bit later in the game. Played this game many times this week. Everyone was really interested in the in the action of this game. It's definitely on the gateway to a slightly little bit heavier game. I would say probably the closest thing that remind me as far as complexity is con- concerned would probably have to be Century Spice Road where anyone can sit down and play this game and have a good time with it. But if you are a gamer, you're going to be able to put the combos together much better than a non-gamer would be, and you can kind of blow them out. So you want to be really careful about that. I enjoyed this game. Everyone at the table enjoyed this game. It has relatively, you know, because of the dispenser, uh, a pretty kind of expansive table presence. But nonetheless, Gizmos is worth the buy. I really enjoyed the game and definitely will get that out again. All right, so now on the much, much heavier end is a recent Kickstarter that fulfilled, and that would be Container. 10th Anniversary Jumbo Edition. Now, Container is been out for quite some time, but it was in limited print supply, so people had, I guess, a, a copy that's really been worn down or made mock-ups of their own, but this was a game that people were long for, and it finally hit the table, and man, when this thing hit the table, it seriously hit the table. I don't think that I've seen a game with heavier components, and not I don't mean complexity here, I mean really heavy components the ships that are moving these containers are a solid solid block of plastic resin that you could do some serious damage if you hit somebody with those and they're probably somewhat brittle enough that if you drop that probably high enough they probably would break but really really chunky pieces as far as this game's concerned so ships are chunky the little shipping containers are really chunky there's also warehouse in the games that are made of wood for some reason, and there's also factories that are made of wood, which once again is a little odd because the ships and the containers are highly detailed plastic and the warehouses and the factories are kind of abstracted pieces of wood. Nonetheless, beyond those components, you're going to get money that's a, that are basically cards. In addition to that, you're going to get us your own kind of home board that is okay, it's not the greatest graphic design, it's actually a little bit blurry, but it kind of serves the purpose. Now, let's talk about the actual game. Just like Gizmos in a way, this game is pretty simple, but if you're not really into the heavy, crunchy, complex games, you're gonna have a hard time, because when it comes down to it, there's really a few actions you can take. So first off, you can build a factory. Building factories are important because the different color factories are telling you what types of different container colors you're gonna be able to build. So if you have a purple factory, it's going to build purple containers. That's important because building containers will allow other players to purchase those containers from your factories, ship them on the road to their port, and then they will be able to reassess the price there. So for example, once you build your own containers, You could choose to charge between one and four dollars, but they can choose later on, once it gets to their port, to choose anywhere between two and six dollars. Now, what you and what they end up choosing to charge, as far as the cost is concerned, typically is based upon the market, and the market here is everyone else in the game. So, if someone else is selling their product for six and they're also purple. You might want to think on the high end as well, or maybe just undercut them by a dollar. So maybe just sell them for five. Now, you can't purchase your own containers, but you can purchase everyone else's containers. Now, the reason why you're selling containers is because you're getting money because later on in the game, there will be an auction for the containers. So once somebody has their boat filled up with containers, they'll sail to this island that has everyone's player color, and then those containers will come up for auction. Now, what you choose to pay for those containers is highly dependent upon this secret card that you get at the beginning of the game. This card will tell you how much different colored containers are worth for you throughout the game. So, for example, you might have the beige containers worth 10 where the black containers are worth 2. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty simple. I'll just buy all the beige containers. But at the end of the game... Whatever container color you have the most of gets wiped out. So if you do have all of those 10s, well, that's going to get wiped out. You're going to get left with the rest. So you want to purchase containers pretty much in a balanced type of way. At the very least, buy the very expensive ones for you, but also buy the cheapest ones you can. Try to get it even or try to get the cheapest one as high as possible so that you don't lose the big money at the end of the game. Obviously, when the game comes to an end, it's all about money, so you don't want to over-purchase for these different containers in the game. So, sometimes, even though you might need it, you might want to let it go just so you can hold on to your cash and see where things are, especially when it comes to later game where people may not have as much money available to them. Money is pretty much fixed in this game. You're not going to get a large influx of it, so whatever everyone starts with is more or less what they end with. So, Keep that in mind throughout the game. Now, this game is amazing as far as having a very simple rule set. It doesn't take too much to kind of like wrap your brain around it. But the decisions you make are very complex because you have to figure, what am I going to sell things for? What money am I going to get back? How much am I going to pay for things at an auction? What's very valuable for me? But I also have to purchase something that's least valuable and then what types of containers do I want to flood the market with because I may need those to be available either to be at my high point or at my low point. And obviously, depending on the color, that's going to change the price and the value of those containers in the market. I really enjoyed this game. I think the only thing that would keep this back from a buy is the extremely high price tag of it. So for the Kickstarter, it was in Canadian dollars, but basically in American dollars, you're looking at between, I guess, $75 and $80 for this game. The ships are overproduced. They're very nice, don't get me wrong. But for the price of this game, I'm going to have to put this down just to a play, just because of price alone. Because the game, while it's a great auction game and it's a great kind of like brain burner as far as what am I producing for the market, the price is a little high. And finally, let me say one last thing that the game really doesn't address is player count. As I mentioned, you're going to get a card that's going to set what is high for you and all of the other colors, as far as the game is concerned, how they kind of descend to the lowest. Everyone else is going to get a card. Everyone else is going to have a different combination. So at the five-player count, it's amazing because everyone has something super high, everyone has something super low, and you're kind of competing in that way. But if you're playing at the small player count, then it doesn't become as dynamic auctions aren't good at a lower player count especially when the prices aren't valued as high for everyone involved in the game so two games gizmos is a buy and container just because it's just a little too much and especially when it comes to the auction mechanic you must play with five players is a little bit underwhelming so i'm going to give container 10th anniversary jumbo edition a play
0: yeah that thing is super expensive I like I looked at it after the fact. I didn't I must have missed a Kickstarter somehow. And I was like, ooh, big ships. And I was like, ooh, no way. <laughs> I'm
1: paying $125 for overproduced ships. And I can almost justify the cost if it wasn't for the fact that when it comes to an auction game and most auction games in general, not just container, you have to play at the high player count. Because it's just Yeah. Auction games don't play well when you're playing with two or three people. All right, so that's everything that's hitting our table this week. Let's get on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about, if you like poker, try out these other games. So for very many of us, we got into board gaming because we were interested in gaming as a hobby. And for quite some time, especially maybe let's say five or ten years ago, poker was really super hot. Especially Texas Hold'em with that whole kind of hidden cam where you can kind of play along with the players. Well, poker became huge kind of blew up. You had worldwide poker competitions. Everyone was watching that. Got people into more competitive games. I know I was a big Texas Hold'em player. I know many of our board game people out there were the same. And there are still a lot of poker players out there. Now, we want to kind of introduce them into board gaming and help them pick out the games that would be great for them. Help them pick out those first purchases that will get them into board gaming and involve them into more complex gaming later on. Because a lot of the mechanics that you find in poker, you'll find in great board games. All right, Anthony, so we got a great list here. So if you got your poker buddies at the table, let's get you involved in some board gaming. So why don't you start us off? All right, so the first game I wanted to talk about is not
0: necessarily, so there's a lot of things when you can talk about when you talk about poker. You can talk about the bluffing, the betting, or the actual mechanics of the game where you're building hands. I really like all the different ways that every single Western game finds to jam poker mm-hmm. into it somehow. But there's a handful of them that do it really well. And one of the ones I like the best is Town. Uh, this is designed by Bruno Cathala and Ludovic Maubloch. And in the game, instead of cards, you're going to have dice. And you're going to use these dice to make poker hands. But it kind of does it in a almost Yahtzee-like way in that you're going to roll your dice and you're going to take one of them out and it's going to start... And you can do that until you have a full hand. And if you wanna take multiple dice out when you roll them, instead of having to keep re-rolling them every time, you have to pay money to do so. Uh, the goal of all this is to have the best hand or the majority of certain types of different, of the different suits that are available for each of the different locations. So um, there's multiple locations on the board and each of them is gonna allow you to do some certain things. There's a gold mine, there's a bank, there's a general store where you can pick up things that you want, lots of different things you can do here. Ultimately, the goal is to get the most gold nuggets by the end of the game. And then there's dollars as well that you're going to be picking up. So unlike a lot of these other Western games, unlike the one I talked about a little bit earlier, you're not necessarily just shooting each other, but it does have a little bit of that back and forth and trying to sneak in and take stuff from other people. But you're doing it with dice and you're doing it with poker hands. And I really like how it kind of pulls all of that together.
1: Yeah, for me on the kind of entry level poker game, I really enjoy those moments where it comes down to one or two people and you're trying to figure out what do they got? What really is their hand? And based upon what people have been wagering up to that point, what can I expect to see? And obviously, what do they think I have? So on the lightest end here, a game that I've seen a lot of different gamers have, no matter what games they're really interested in, is Liar's Dice. Now, Liar's Dice is really interesting because there's so many different versions of this, but yet it really involves probably some of the key elements of poker in the best way possible. So you're going to have a certain number of dice, you're typically going to have some sort of cup, and everyone is going to shuffle the dice in the cup, place it face down, take a look at their dice, see what they have, and then a bidding situation kind of takes place where people declare what they have until somebody calls someone's bluff. Now, based upon how many dice are in the cup, you have a general idea, although sometimes there's variables and sometimes there's wilds in the game. But basically, if there's six dice in the game, someone could have a hand of you know six fives, for example. So someone might say, I have five sixes. Now, on your turn you have to kind of one-up them there. If you don't, then all you really can do is call their bluff in that game. If you're wrong either way, then you are going to lose a die, and then eventually the possible hands that you can kind of put together becomes less. So it becomes a little more rough for you as the game goes on, but you have to know when to call people's bluff, and you have to know when to bluff yourself. Liar's Dice is on the light end, but it is so much fun. I own a copy, and no matter what type of gamer you are, you should definitely own a copy as well.
0: All right, so another game here is Taj Mahal. This is a little bit older of a game. It's from Reiner Knizia, came out in two thousand, and just recently got a re-release from Z-Man, uh, so you can pick this one up in a nice, fancy new edition. And the idea of the game is to gain influence points, which you're going to do by building different types of buildings and acquiring commodities. Very similar, kind of abstracty take on politics that you see in most Reiner community games. But what's really interesting about this game is that over the course of the 12 turns, you're gonna be auctioning um, for different area control and trying to gain the support of all the different individuals involved represented by symbols on these cards. So you're gonna have cards that come in four different colors and they have five different symbols uh, based on the different types of people you can interact with. And then you're trying to gain prizes based on that. So you can only play one color in any given turn and then you can either increase your bid by playing more cards or withdraw on your turn. So um, when you do, you get the reward or you can pull back. So it's kind of have that bluffing element um, where you're building up, you're bidding, you're trying to get the most, and in the end, if it's really not gonna work out for you, you have to fold in some way. Um, But at the same time, it's connected to this clever, almost abstract Euro uh, in which you are building routes, connecting things, trying to get out um, these palaces and get the majority of influence points that you can in, in this great kind of amalgam of different mechanics But it does remind me a little bit of that fun that you have in the interaction with other players Something you don't see as much in this type
1: of game. So that is Taj Mahal well another great poker game and obviously this isn't too much of a stretch here is Pyramid Poker by r Games. This is a game that Anthony and I reviewed not too long ago and Really enjoy it. First off. It's at a great price And second, it allows you to play poker in three dimensions. So basically what you're doing in this game is you are selecting these different wooden rectangular blocks, just like a normal kind of deck of cards. And then you're going to pick 15 out of those blocks or 15 cards. And then you and the person you're playing against, because this is only a two-player game, are going to build up a pyramid. But you are going to be able to see the suit and number or suit in the card that you are playing in the pyramid, but you're not going to see what your opponent's playing. And then once this pyramid's built out of all your blocks, then you're going to start being pulling the pyramid down, picking out different blocks in order to make three different poker hands. So sometimes you'll know what's there, sometimes you won't. So you'll have some information. This kind of reminds me of Texas Hold'em as far as You get an idea of what the community cards could possibly be, and some other cards, not so much. So you build up those three different hands, and whoever has the best hands wins. Standard rules according to poker hands apply. A lot of fun. Anyone can play this. It's a really kind of great, I guess in some ways, a little bit of a gimmick, but it really brings people to the table. That's pyramid poker.
0: Alright, so the third one I wanted to talk about is another Reiner Kinizia game because apparently he likes poker mechanics. This is Shot and Totten or Battle Line as it was later re implemented. Very basic, relatively quick game. It takes about 15 20 minutes to play for two players. And in it, you're going to be trying to capture these different points. Um, There's going to be a certain number of them lined out between you and your opponent. I think it's nine in Shot and Totten. I'm not sure if it's different in Battle Line. And to actually capture them, you're going to have to play formations of three cards in poker-like formations. So I'm um, going to try to be getting, you know, three pairs or sets or whatever, however you end up setting them up. Um, but the goal of this is to get the higher rate formation and therefore win those points and using the kind of unique tactic cards that come in um, originally Battleline and then Shot and Totten after that, that kind of tweak with the rules a little bit and make you have to try to figure out what's possible, what's not possible for each of the players. It's a very fun kind of back and forth with a lot more thinking than you might expect uh, for the weight of the game. And there's a reason it keeps being re-released in new versions. Currently, I think you can still get Battle Line in the the GMT editions. And then there is a newer version of Shot and Totten that was recently re-released by Yellow. But this game is pretty frequently in print and for good reason. Uh, Definitely
1: reminds me of a quick two-player Poker. All right, and my final game for me is my heaviest game as far as a board game version, or in this case, a card game version of poker, and that's Doomtown Reloaded. Now, this game was originally out there by AEG, but it kind of fell off, and it was thought that it was going to be lost forever, but it was recently picked up, and I'm really glad to see that. Now, Doomtown Reloaded has had many iterations, but all the iterations— had a good number of things in common, especially the poker mechanic. So you had this collectible card game, living card game, in which you were playing your cards against another player at the table. Beautiful artwork, great Western theme here. And it had an additional element of building up a poker hand. So you could decide to play the card for the special ability, or you could play the card for the suit, or you can play the card to build this certain hand that you're going to need if you're going to come down to a shootout. This game has so much wonderful complexity, especially all the different gangs that are fighting each other out. The new version of it is available. Whether you pick up the AEG version or the brand new version, you're going to get a lot of fun gameplay out of here. Play with different gangs, but build the best poker hand is the key to success in Doomtown Reloaded alright so that's everything for this week but don't forget there's still more BGA to be had check out our Patreon account patreon.com backslash BGA where you can listen to brand new Patreon episodes where we're talking about everything when it comes to gaming alright so that's everything for this week until next time this is Chris and this is Anthony and we'll save you a seat at the poker table